Good morning. It's not a place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you. Isn't it good to be together? I told the early service, I preach on Noah every week if God will send us rain like this. Uh, he, was just, he was just prepping you all. You woke up and said, well, I guess we best go listen in case this keeps on. Now, that's week three. It's not going not gonna to happen this way again. But uh, weeks one and two, we've got some ground to cover. Um, to be fully transparent, this... Uh, little mini-series was provoked by Brooklyn, so she has been begging me since I started preaching to do a sermon series on, or a lesson on Noah, but you don't ask a preacher to do a lesson, I get to do a series, so here we are. I, one of my fondest memories from my childhood is, uh, is maybe not my fondest memory, but a memory that I have is listening to my dad sing a song about Noah. So some of you may have heard, I, I thought it was something that he made up, and I Googled it the other day, and all of the magic was ruined, because it was actually the, the Statler brothers. Um, and I, I, I've been debating, I just couldn't really bring myself to sing it to y'all, so I maybe just am going to kind of share a few of the lyrics with you. Because it starts out, and I mean, we would just have a grand old time singing. Well, the Lord looked down from his window in the sky, and he said, I created man, but I don't remember why. Nothing but fighting since creation day, so I'll send a little water, and I'll wash them all away. So the Lord came down to look around a spell, and there he found Noah behaving mighty well. And that's the reason the scriptures record, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Yeah. Say, so I see some of y'all know it, nodding. You've, uh, you've heard that song before. And they go on through all the different verses to tell the story of Noah and, and the flood that's going to be coming. They say, there's going to be a flood. You've got to get ready for the mud. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's really clever. Um, and we get to the end, and, and they talk about landing on Mount Ararat and the, Noah getting off the boat. And it ends with saying, and take all the creatures and the people of the earth and don't be more trouble than you're worth. And then off goes Noah. <laughs> You know, we have the fondest memories of the story of Noah. It's one of our favorite stories to teach in our children's Bible classes. Um, it's one of the ones that I feel like we have the most, the, the felt boards and the, and the storybooks and the, and the animals and, and the paintings and the drawings. And, and there's certainly some, some wonderful lessons we gain from the story of Noah. But the bottom line is this, the story of Noah is not a children's story. And as I've been preparing, I've kind of wrestled with how to present it. Because if I was real honest about the reality of this situation, the story of Noah is the most formidable display of God's wrath throughout all of Scripture. And there's some difficult things that happen in this story. As I was preparing, I, I ran across a, a painting from Gustave Doré called The Deluge. Uh, I, I can't show it to y'all because it is a little bit inappropriate like some of those old paintings are, but it... <laughs> It painted this, this powerful picture. It's, it showed water as far as the eye could see. And jutting out from the middle of the water was, a, was the last rock. And on top of the rock was a, was a tiger holding her, her wet cubs in her mouth. And beside her, she wasn't even paying attention to the children, the three children that were sitting beside her. And, and pushing up from the edge of the rock was a, obviously a mother and father taking their infant and attempting to push their infant to safety. And around them, there's bodies floating in the water and, and tiring vultures circling around in the sky. And as you look at that image and you think about the futility of all that you see unfolding, because it wouldn't be long until the very rock that those creatures were perched on was covered, it starts to make you realize the magnitude of what happened in the flood. So we're going to attempt over a three-week period to understand how this 
difficult story fits into the narrative of Scripture. You know, it teaches us some uncomfortable but, but powerful lessons about God and humanity and, and ultimate reality. So this first week, we're going to kind of look at the situation before the flood. Next week, we're going to look at the flood itself, and then we're going to look at what we see unfolding after the flood, and I'm excited about that. So Genesis chapter 6 is where you're going to want to start. So everyone, everyone to open your Bible, open your device to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to spend the majority of our time in chapters 4, 5, and 6. So you're just going to want to stay there so your eyes can track to the places I'm at while I'm talking. But we're going to start with reading Genesis 6, 5 through 22. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, and its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now as I first step up to the story of Noah and the ark, the first big question I ask is, how did we get here in such a short span of time? You can have a lot of fun in chapter 5 looking through the genealogy of Noah because it gives the ages and the, um, of, of everyone leading up to Noah as they were born. And if you do the math, about 1,656 years had passed from the time of creation to the time of Noah. So a relatively short amount of time had elapsed, and yet we see the text make some powerful proclamations about what was going on. I mean, in verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How? 
I mean, that's quite a place to be. In verses 11 through 13, it says, um, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. In verse 12, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh, all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So we see this violent, wicked place where the the intentions of man, there was no space in their heart for anything other than evil. And I look at that and think, how in a short period of time did we get to such a place? It stands as a testament to the sinful nature of mankind. You know, if we back up to verse 4, we see the, or chapter 4, we see the spread of sinfulness begins immediately after the garden. Of course, Cain kills Abel. And, and after he does, he has this interaction with God. And the text tells us in verse 16 that he goes away from the presence of the Lord. Genesis 4.16 Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. So Cain takes his, his self and his family and he sets, up, he sets up camp in this land of Nod away from the presence of the Lord and he begins this lineage that honestly does some really cool and interesting things over time, but they also perpetuate violence. I actually want to read verses 17 through 24. There's a lot of names here, but, um, but bear with me. It says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when, he, and when he built a city, he, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methus- Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. And Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who lived in tents and had livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of the instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wife, Sadah and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So what do we see here in chapter 4? We see some really awesome things. The first city was built. That means civilization was starting to be put together. People were learning to live in community. Through Cain's lineage, we see the first ranchers appear. They lived in tents and they kept livestock. But not just that, we see the arts show up. And they learned the art of making music, stuff that we still enjoy today. Tubal Cain was the forger of of bronze and iron. So even at this early stage in Cain's lineage, they learned to to make incredible things. uh, Tools and tools, but also weapons. And we see that the, the violence that entered the earth through Cain when he murdered Abel, was also perpetuated through his builded line. Lamech talks about killing a man for wounding me, and I think that's, that's one thing to say in these days. It's a whole other thing to say when you're living with your sons and daughters in such close proximity. I mean, Lamech literally would have had to kill people who were his close blood relatives to make an, a, a claim like this. I look at this situation that was kind of rising up around humanity at the time of the flood, and, and it kind of takes me back to watching the COVID situation unfold. And I don't mean to make any sort of political statement at all about this. I just, I just, I just want to think for a second about how we saw that occur. We the first thing you probably heard was a, a little news story that maybe you dismissed. Somewhere off in the far reaches of the planet, something had showed up and you didn't give much thought to it. 
And then it moved a little closer, and it was on the news a little more. But it didn't take long before this thing that seemed so far off had multiplied and, and gained momentum. And it didn't, we scrambled trying to figure out what to do, but we couldn't stop the momentum of this infectious disease as it, as it just washed its way through all of these different peoples and places and cultures, all of humanity, until it was everywhere, all-consuming. And I look at that pattern, and I see that it's not just viruses that operate that way. Human behavior spreads the same way. Ideologies filter through the human race the same way that that type of stuff does. The bottom line is this. Sin is infectious. And when people are left to their own accord, when they know nothing about epidemiology and have no measure in place to prevent its spread, sin becomes devastating. And that's the situation we arrive at here at the beginning of the story of Noah. Now, if you back up to the end of chapter 4, you'll see that we introduce Seth and the line of Noah. Seth was the replacement for Abel that was given to Adam and Eve. And it said about the time that he started having sons, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So all of the people who are laid out in verse 5 come after a time when people had begun to call on the name of the Lord. And that tells me something powerful, that even those who call upon the name of the Lord are not exempt from falling. Whether you're in Cain's lineage or, or Seth's, the infection of, of sin knows no boundaries. As I kind of look back over the, the lineage in verse five, uh, chapter 5, there's some interesting things. Um, for instance, the only named person in the lineage of Noah who could have possibly died in the flood was Methuselah. If you do the math, the man who lived the, the longest um, either died the year of the flood or died in the flood. People debate um, what exactly happened. Um, I mean, without a doubt, there were children of these patriarchs that were listed that died in the flood. There were people all throughout the line of Seth who were not righteous, who were infected with the absolute, utter wickedness of sin, fully corrupted with the cancer of sin. You know, as I, I shift away from there and I, I move over into the New Testament, I wonder, is the same thing true today? This type of depravity, uh, I mean, do we see it? I think we look out around and we think that it's there, but the truth is Paul in Romans paints a very similar picture. We're not going to walk through all of it, but Romans 1, 2, and 3 are really Paul giving his exposition on how this same thing happens in modern times. In chapter 1 of Romans, he presents this, this situation of the non-believer, the person who would turn their back on God and ignore obvious realities that they see around them. And what happens there? God turns them over to their sin, and they, they end up heading down a pathway of depravity. And we nod our heads and we say, yes, Paul, we see that all around us. And then Paul takes this scripture in chapter 2 and he, he turns that light right back on the Jews that were sitting there nodding saying yes 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 and he says yeah but you're really not any different because you act the same way you do the same things he says the difference between you and them is you know better you have the law you have the truth and so what we end up with is this situation where Paul's built this case of we have believers and we have non-believers and we're all wrestling with this infection of sin and it culminates in Romans 3:23 where he says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God it makes me think of this song we would sing sometime at camp I guess I'm in a singing mood I guess when I was preparing I was in a singing mood 
Luke hadn't been in the office, so someone has to sing in his place. Um, but we had this, this song, and it would be a repeat-after-me one. So I would say a verse, and then you could get the kids riled up, and they would say a verse. I'm not going to make you all repeat after me, because evidently that's Luke and Tyler's thing, and I won't do that to you all. Um, but it says, uh, I, you can't ride on my little red wagon. The seat is broken, the axle's dragging. Oomph, ah, oomph, ah, ah. And then everyone repeats that. And then what do you say? Same song, different verse. A whole lot louder and a whole lot worse. You can't ride on my little red wagon. The seat is broken. The axle's dragging. And everyone repeats. And then what do you do? Same song, different verse. A whole lot louder and a whole lot worse. And before you know it, you can get this room of teenagers screaming nonsense at the top of their lungs. And I look at that, and I look at this situation, and I think, isn't that just kind of like humanity? Same song, different verse. A whole lot louder and a whole lot worse. And we're on this cycle. We're just over and over again. We, we get caught in, in the trap of sin, and, and it just seems to, to boil over in all we see. Now, I'm not convinced that we live in a day and a time where the same level of de- pre-flood depravity exists. I think that God's covenant relationship that he made with Noah and his people moving forward has helped keep things in check at a level that's at least workable. I believe that there are balancing forces at play. That said... We still live in a world of depravity. It's nothing new. And so, this little statement that we find in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, should be of utmost importance to us. Because it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How did Noah find favor? Amidst this brokenness, somehow God, Noah managed to walk with God. One of the most fun things to do with the kids on a trip, if we were staying in a hotel that had an elevator, it's like, y'all should do this sometime, it's a fun social experiment. You get on the ground floor and you push the very top button so you get to go all the way to the top, and then everyone walks into the elevator, but instead of being a normal, sane human being and facing the door, you turn around and you face the back, and you stand there, and you just wait, and hope that the elevator door will open and someone will walk in. And it's really good if you're in an elevator with a mirror because you can watch their face. Because they walk in and then they look at you and nine times out of ten, you know what they do? They face backwards with you. <laughs> because, because we're people who, who don't like to look different. We don't like to stand out. Um, we want to fall along and fit in. But somehow, in the midst of all this brokenness, Noah was able to operate in a way that was different. He was able to be one of the people who could turn around and face the way that he knew was a normal, sane way to face in an elevator. In verses chapter 6, verse 8, we read, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 9, we read, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, And Noah walked with God. So Noah came through the line of Seth, Abel's replacement. He had certainly in his lineage other family members who feared God. Enoch, one of the the handful of people to not die, Enoch walked with God and was no more, was in the lineage of Noah. But it's interesting that Noah would have never met Enoch. Enoch was taken away before Noah was born. Noah would have been 84 years old at the death of Enosh, Adam's grandson. 
So Noah, Noah definitely could have heard some uh, secondhand stories about things from the beginning. Noah certainly saw a lot and, and, and met a lot of different people. The truth is, though, I'm, I'm just not sure what caused Noah to be different. I mean, his father Lamech had named him with a sense of hopefulness. Lamech obviously understood about the curse and about God because Lamech, when he named him Noah, said, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So I think that it's quite possible that Noah came from a family who had passed down some level of generational faithfulness. Was Methuselah one of the last faithful people on earth? And he died the year of the flood, and then God decided to wipe him out? Or was Methuselah killed in the flood? I don't know. I think it's more likely that Methuselah probably wasn't that faithful. I mean, when God looked down, he didn't say, well, I see Noah and some of his other family members who are faithful. He just said, Noah. So I think that it's likely that that even that lineage of faithfulness was broken. Here are the things we know about Noah. Here's what Genesis tells us, that he found favor that he was righteous and blameless and that he walked with God. It doesn't give us any reason why. It doesn't, it doesn't give us any evidence for how he viewed him this way. It just says that it was so. So we kind of have to read between the lines to try to figure out, so what was it about Noah that was so different? You know, what, what did Noah do that made God look at him this way? Well, we see in Genesis chapter five, uh, six, five, chapter 6, verse 5, one of the accusations that God made against all of humanity was that every intention of the thoughts of their heart were evil continually. This means Noah must have been different. So Noah had space in his heart for good thoughts at a very minimum. In verse 13, it says that the earth was filled with violence because of flesh. So at a bare minimum, Noah would have been someone who, who didn't pursue violence as a means of rectifying things. Moses would have, uh, Noah would have been a, a non-violent person. The one fact that we know about Noah, and this is after these proclamations, is that Noah was obedient. At the end of chapter 6, verse 22, we read, And Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Later on in chapter 7, verse 5, it repeats that. Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So while the text doesn't tell us what happened prior to building with the ark, I think we can assume that this pattern of obedience was in place before. That was one of the things that allowed him to walk with God and find favor. So, if I assembled this list of the attributes of Noah, here's what I would have. A heart that at least at times thought of good things. A nonviolent approach to other men, and I think you could say creation in general. And obedience to the direct commands of God. Where these came from, I don't know. Perhaps God had gifted him with a special measure of self-control, a personality willing to change the status quo. We've certainly seen people who have a personality just built in them where they're willing to buck the system. Maybe it was passed down generationally. Maybe it was a combination of those things. Perhaps he had an experience as a child that helped him see God. We simply have no idea. We just know that he was righteous in a depraved world. We know that Noah chose righteousness when others did not. And that's our lot as well. 
Regardless of where it comes from, we are called to live righteous lives in the midst of a depraved world. We're called to have hearts that, that think of good things, hearts that are open to good. We're called to approach mankind and creation with an attitude of nonviolence. We're called to be obedient to the direct commands of God. And I believe our hearts and our actions are under our control. These are choices that we make. A choice that Noah made and a choice that despite your lot in life, you can make. Now, we have to be careful because these choices that Noah made were not enough to save him. And we're going to talk about that more as we progress through the story. But what they did is they provided him with a connection point to the God who would save him. So I wonder when the Lord looks down from his window in the sky and he looks at us, what does he see? We also learned some powerful lessons about God. Won't cover them all today, but we'll cover three. The first one that we notice leading up to the flood is that God allows wickedness. He does not stop it. Now, this is in line with what we read in the New Testament. I've brought up Romans chapter 1 already. In verses 22 through 24, it reads, Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The text says God gave them up. It's repeated later in that chapter. And the, and the picture is this. If you want to turn your back on God, if you want to ignore God, if you want to live otherwise, God is going to allow you to. Since the beginning of time, this has been the pattern that has unfolded. People have been allowed to make choices, and they continue to make awful choices. And if that's what they want, God will let them. But also in this story, despite its difficulty, we see that God never gives up on man. You know, the story of Noah really points us ahead to Jesus Christ and the saving things that he's going to do. Throughout all of history, this is kind of a motif that is repeated over and over again. Is as things get really bad, God brings in the right person to bridge the gap and shuttle people on to the next stage. Over and over again this happens, and it's all leading and culminating in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Savior of all humanity, the only righteous one in a world of brokenness who's going to show up and provide a, a bridge, a connecting point for us to transition from, from, from this world of sin to this world where everything has been fixed. Ultimately, he is paving this road to the final judgment day when all sin will be erased. Christ is the boat that we can all get on. Again, we're going to talk about more, more about that in weeks to come. The final thing that I see about God is this, is despite our sinfulness, despite the depravity that we see around us, and even the sin that see, we see welling up in our own lives, there are things that we can do to place ourselves under the saving grace of God. Perfection is not a requirement. I do not believe Noah was perfect. We see him failing after the flood. Um, but, but one thing is required, obedience. It may have seemed trivial at the time, but when God told Noah to build an ark and make it out of gopher wood and build it this size, you know what Noah did? He did that. 
And he might not have fully understood what all of the directions were pointing him to and exactly why God had done it that way. I'm sure there was a lack of clarity, but Noah understood the importance of obedience. God is looking for hearts who have space left for good. God is looking for humans who desire something other than than violence. And God has told us exactly what to do. Repent and be baptized into Christ. Learn His teachings. Walk in Christian community. We're called to walk with God in the midst of a broken world. Church, I know that that's not always easy. Because we live in a world that's really broken. It requires the resolve to be different. It requires the resolve to stand and face the different way in an elevator. And sometimes that can make us really uncomfortable. And it can be a challenge and it can push us. But it's possible. It's possible to do. You can choose to leave space in your heart for good. You can choose nonviolence. You can choose obedience. And if we can open our hearts to goodness... If we can respond in obedience, then God will step in and do the rest. Here's what he asks of you. He says, do you believe? Because if you believe, you have the heart he's looking for. If you believe, he says, repent and be baptized. Turn from violence and do what he says. And that's how you step on the boat. The ship is being built The door isn't yet sealed. You're being invited on board. Many of you are on the boat already, but you look out in the world and there's a lot of people who are not. And we need to be preaching and begging and showing so that they would be on the boat too. Because God's design, God's, God's desire is that not a single one would perish. We have the waters of baptism ready this morning. If you have a need, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.